Welcome to Eurovision Song Context. This is a podcast that tries to get to the bottom of what makes a Eurovision submission successful. Why do we love the submissions we do, and what do they say about us? It's a tour of taste, identity, and the ins and outs of ESC. In every episode, I chat with a special guest, and we eventually talk about two or three old submissions we really loved or really didn't. It's episode five. I'm Bradley Dalton Oates, and I'm joined today by Richard Di Domenici. He's an artist and filmmaker. We'll talk about Corona Vision, Redux, Art, Absurdity, and General Subversiveness. And then we'll chat about some iconic submissions from 2021, 2009, 2000, and 1996, including Gina G. Ping-Pong, Emmy Van Steen, and Krasimir Avramov. I always encourage you to go to the show page at eurovisionsongcontext.fireside.fm and watch the submissions before we talk about them. This time, I especially encourage you to take a look at Richard's art before we talk about it. Welcome, Richard. Hello. Thanks for having me. Hello. Hello. I am just going to read the description on your page more or less wholesale. Your website says that you specialize in urban absurdist interventions, which strive to create the kind of uncertainty that leads to possibility. You have invented the karaoke, a wearable karaoke system, office chair sport, the Swivelympics, and crocheted cryptocurrency Knitcoin, K-N-I-T-C-O-I-N. Uh, You've done a popular project called the Redux Project, which we will discuss later for BBC4. And it was described as one of the smartest, strangest, subversive half hours of television they had ever seen, which I think dovetails nicely with Eurovision. Uh, You've made work in over 30 countries, and next year you will plan to take your work to Malaysia, Macedonia, and Milton Keynes. And you're currently busy, busy developing some secret projects. Shh. For Tate Modern, and uh, devising a site-specific project in Iran. The most interesting thing here is that The Guardian has called you the thinking man's Ashton Kutcher, which broke my brain because I cannot imagine a a thinking Ashton Kutcher. Not that I know him personally, I just know his persona. So I I don't know what that looks like. So, okay. I think it was in relation to... That's the CV. Um, some of that information is slightly out of date. I apologize. I need to update my website. The um, the Ashton Kutcher reference was, I think, regarding Punked, his um, television show. Yeah. That's selling you and a bit short, though. That's selling you a I lot they're short. Writing, they were writing in reference to my Fake Olympic torch performance where I ran through the streets of the UK just as a torchbearer with a Fake Olympic torch about a minute before the actual Olympic torch came by to cause uncertainty and confusion amongst the participants and spectators and part- and um, other runners and the police. They all got especially confused. Right. And I wasn't technically doing anything legal, so they couldn't really stop me from doing it. And it was a form of protest, but it was ambiguous in that I could have just been a, a, a very enthusiastic fan right. of the Olympic torch wanting to get involved. And so... Not of the Olympics, a fan of the Olympic torch. 
Yeah, and all, all, right. the, all the Olympics, or both, or both. And the police were quite strict about traditional forms of protest. They'd just wrestle you to the ground and put you in a police van, whereas my intervention was a bit more vague and therefore harder to stop. And I went all around the UK with that. And um, I hope to take it to Paris for the Olympics next year. So do do look out for that. Wow. I didn't take it to Brazil because in Brazil they've got um, armed police and I don't speak any Portuguese and it's too hot and I would have died of, of um, either exhaustion or being shot by the Brazilian police. So, but Paris, you know, seems like a better, you know. That sounds duty. like excuses to me, really. Like okay. Yeah. Well, if I, you... look. If I could have, if I, if I could afford the plane tickets to Sao Paulo, I would have done it. No, Rio de Janeiro. I would have, I would have gone, but I couldn't afford either. That's the fourth reason. Whereas oh, that's, Paris, you that's, know, yeah, that's it's a bit, bit easier to do. I can get there in a couple of hours. Um, so I think that's what the Ashton Kutcher thing was about. Um, and the Iranian project, the the Iranian project didn't happen in the end. I was trying to take a project to Iran for quite some time, but actually, it's, I, it's I, I am working on a though it's not Iran I'm sorry it, it's 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 Milton Keynes here the thing that doesn't fit I mean I read this and I was like Malaysia Macedonia <laughs> Milton Keynes the Tate Modern yeah. and Iran and I was like none of those things are I can't do anything with that in Eurovision Macedonia <laughs> maybe Macedonia I could I could okay where do I go from here and why Milton Keynes Superman 4 Milton... that's why that's what everyone says about about Milton Keynes Superman 5 was filmed here or whatever Superman 4 the quest for peace um, I recreated I recreated about 11 minutes of the film with local participants on a shoestring budget in the original locations where the film was shot. So we found loads of the uh, office buildings. If you've not seen Superman 4, it's supposed to be set in Metropolis, which is usually New York, but due to budgetary cuts at the time by Canon Films, they thought, let's film it in the most modern city in the UK which was Milton Keynes. And Milton Keynes City of the Future. It's like a bit, it's, it's a built city. It's it's like an entirely weirdly constructed, not historical, yeah. just conjured out of nothing city. It's a very unique place. However, it in no way resembles New York. The buildings <laughs> are only a maximum of, I think, four stories high. There was no attempt to add any map paintings into the background to make the buildings look taller. It's very obviously Milton Keynes, and um, I like that kind of uh, dissonance, you know. And the people of Milton Keynes are quite proud. Tell me about Redux, because um, we're skipping ahead a bit. But tell me about Redux. Like, so this was part of your it, Redux project, and you've got some Eurovision Redux, I think, as well. Yeah, it started by mistake. I was asked by an organisation called Forest Fringe in the UK if I had any ideas for site-specific work in a theatre sorry, in a cinema in Bangkok. And I said, uh, no, but give me 48 hours and I'll think of some ideas. So I came back to them with some ideas for some films that we could recreate in and around the cinema. The Scala Cinema, it was called. It's sadly been demolished now, which is a, a cultural tragedy. And they said, yeah, okay. So we recreated some scenes from a, the most popular film in Thailand in 2009, I think it's called Bangkok Traffic Love Story, set on the Bangkok Skytrain system, which goes right past the Scala Cinema. And we recreated about five minutes to the best of our abilities, given my limited means. I was just holding the camera, trying to match up the shots that I had on my phone. And we screened it in the Scala Cinema. 
And I was playing the lead, and I thought maybe people would be offended by my uh, portrayal of uh, a Thai woman. However, yeah. a, a reviewer from the local um, newspaper, the Bangkok, oh, what's it called? The Bangkok Herald? I can't remember. Anyway, like the leading newspaper in Bangkok um, said that he preferred my version of Bangkok Traffic Love Story to the original, even though he'd been a fan of the original. So I was amazed by the, how well it was received. And I don't really understand why, but I thought I'd try it again in the UK. I did it in Glasgow. We reduxed some scenes from the film Cloud Atlas, which was set in San Francisco, but filmed in Glasgow. As you do. <laughs> yeah, it's got a similar grid pattern. In fact, the grid pattern of American cities is based on that of Glasgow. So it makes it, it's got some hills and they did quite a good job of, you know, adding some American cars and lampposts and they made it look fairly San Franciscan, but it was still fairly obviously not. San Francisco. Anyway, so we reduxed about five minutes of Cloud Atlas and um, the Scotsman newspaper said that uh, gave it four stars in their review, which was one star more than they gave to Cloud Atlas. So in the first two reduxes, I realised that even though it's a derivative <laughs> project, very derivative, um, not very original idea either, um, somehow it seems to add value and people tend to like my cheap, shoddy, quickly devised remakes to the original. So I've been doing it now for 10 years. I've made over 100 reduxes in the past 10 years all around the world. And um, some of them include Eurovision. And uh, I've Yeah, you've done one for the BBC that, that you painted people black and white. That's right. Not in a racist way. So kind of emulate the um, old fashioned television broadcasting black and white. We weren't allowed to broadcast in black and white. So I had to paint. the. Are you serious? Oh, I thought that was I thought that was a tongue in cheek thing. Like, oh, here's some a bit of footage from the 50s. It's in black and white. Let's just paint the people black and white, which was hilarious. Oh, I, but I, I are you not allowed to broadcast in black and white? They definitely had some kind of standards. There's some kind of BBC standard that you had to use certain cameras and certain technical um, like we might have got, maybe, maybe they would have let us for artistic purposes, but they were quite, they were a bit strict. And I thought, well, let's just do it all in camera as much as we can. And that will override any potential problems. And it turned out looking quite well. And yeah, we did, that was the, we did one Eurovision. I can't sadly remember the, the country or the year, but it was a beautiful song. And then we also recreated Making Your Mind Up by Bucks Fizz, but we changed it slightly. It was a more of a kind of radical, um, post feminist version in which Fox the women Biz. tear off. Fox Biz. Yeah, Fox Biz. It's not rude. Um, it's spelled F-U-X. Um, whereby the women tore off the men's trousers. I've seen it, and, and it, it is... Um, it is like Eurovision itself. I... Yeah, I, I definitely had a strong reaction to it. It was a little bit magic, Mike. It was a little bit magic, Mike, because it's got the the poppers, right? It's got the pants with the it's like track pants with the snaps on the side, so that when you just tug at them, they do come off. I'm assuming that's how that happened, unless you had them in with velcro the BB, or something. For the BBC, we oh, got better yeah, trousers, but before that, yeah. we just had tr white trousers, and the, they just pull our trousers down, which I think was better in a way, because you're right, it was a bit too strippery with the with the velcro pants. Yeah, well, and of course it's like as I remember because I've I've looked at I've been looking at these clips this week. They mm. it was just like then you are just looking at a man in his underwear and you're like white underwear, like some really boring briefs, right? Like like no, we no, we didn't have any underwear on at all. Are you serious? Yeah, 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 yeah. You must have added those. You must have self-censored <laughs> and added 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 some mental pants, oh, which is fine. More about I, me. You know, that's that's more how, about me. You know, we all, we all deal with trauma in different ways, don't we? It's and, fine, uh, yeah. 
but we just showed the buttocks on the BBC because they said we couldn't show penises. But when we do it live in clubs and nightclubs and stuff, we we it's a kind of full frontal extravaganza, which you know, how 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 uh, how do British audiences? deal with this i mean it's it's like what 8 p.m so they've already been drinking for like four or five hours at this point like i've noticed that pubs open up quite early like the minute people clock off work they are in that line you know what i mean by the time they hit you maybe they're socially lubricated i don't know like what i think um most of the performances have been after about 11 or 12 sweet yeah that's perfect yeah most mostly in gay clubs Although a couple of oh, times we did it. Oh, perfect. Even better. Yeah. So nobody, there's no cl- pearl clutching at that point. Nobody's going to be like, well, you know, nobody's going <gasps> to like, no. With the first time we did it was an event called um, Alternative Eurovision on the South Bank in London in a one of those, uh, what do you call them? Those German, in a Spiegel tent. And that was the first time we performed it, and we weren't sure how it would go down with the audience. Sounds so, cold. There was a, there was an there's a, there's normally a bit of an audible gasp, yeah, because it is unexpected. But it's not. I don't think it's it's not violently um, penis based, and it's only for a couple of seconds. Well, you and know, so when I think you're... most people find it funny. Most people just think it's hilarious. I don't think I've had an E-walk. Because you know you're Anyways, expecting the skirt rip-off. That's why you know what you're expecting and then something different you're, you're happens. You know something to get ripped off. So there's a little bit of context for it, but then we, we, we twist it slightly. And I think if people are really upset by the idea, then they should also think about being upset about the original version. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's why so, it broke my brain. I think that's why it broke my brain. I was like, <gasps> and then I was like, wait a minute, what? Anyway, we were only ever supposed to perform once, and then we've, we've performed over 10 times now, and it amazes me, because it's a very expensive show to put on, because it's four performers, and um, it only lasts a minute and a half, so it doesn't make any sense economically, but we've uh, performed Fuxbiz quite a lot, and um, I'm amazed <laughs> that there's uh, such a market for that kind of... Uh, radical I'm, I'm not i'm not because people also loves love bucks fizz that's it there's like a lot of that song is has, has a particular resonance in a way that other i think other esc submissions don't i don't know yes i agree yeah no they're they're still they're beloved they're considered almost national treasures and they country. are national treasures for, for, for weirdly yeah. like it was just a little gimmicky show thing do you know what i mean i don't know like i wasn't around at the time so maybe Maybe that was like quite subversive or just a bit of fun or I don't know. And when I watch it, I just don't, uh, not being part of the culture, and we will get to this later with Gina G, I um, I can just look at it as an outsider. For me, it's just like, yeah, I wasn't there for it to know. Bucks Fizz. Well, Bucks Fizz are a fascinating group um, in their own right. There's a documentary about the schism that happened in the group in the schism. 80s. And then a schism. Do you remember a They can't afford Dollar? a schism. No, they can't afford a schism. Dollar. They're Bucks Fizz. They're not ABBA. They need to... No. There's this man called David Van Day who was in a band called Dollar and he joined Bucks Fizz and then kind of took it over. And basically there's two Bucks Fizz... There's at least two Bucks Fizzes touring at the minute. The rival, rival Bucks Fizzes. <laughs> no, and... there's three because you've got yours. You've got a tribute, oh, yeah, well, your tribute band. Well. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, so. and they, they do know about us. They... Bucks Fizz know about Fuxbiz because they replied to one a tweet once, so they're aware that we're what we're doing, and uh, I think they they haven't objected. So yeah, it's confusing. I, yeah, I um, 
No, I'll skip it. There, there was a Bucks Fizz jewel, <laughs> jewel, jewelry line that I was once vaguely interested in. Oh but my I, god! Yeah, you can buy little dangly champagne earrings with glitter that say Fizz. I won't be buying those. Can you tell me more about shed your fears, cubicle your fears, deliver roops, and plain food cafe? These are these have all got like a bit of a social bent. So that's I, I mean I want to hear about all of them, and I. Spoiler alert, Deliver Roops is not about my favorite band, The Roop. Oh my God. Yeah. I was completely expecting that. I was like, Deliver Roops, I'm in. But no. That's a shame, isn't it? I think it might predate um, The Roop slightly, but there's no reason why we can't get them involved in the future if they don't mind delivering food in their pants. Pants Um, again. Food Cafe was an attempt. No, there were no pants in the first. (laughs) I know, I know. I just wanted to get you. You made those pants up. (laughs) I just wanted to get you riled up. It's fine. Go ahead. (laughs) Uh, The Plain Food Cafe was a temporary restaurant that served genuine aeroplane food um, on the ground for several reasons. When we're in the air, our taste buds are diminished. Yeah. Um, Our sense of taste and flavor and smell go down by, I don't know, 50% or something. So in order for food to taste like food, they have to put pump lots of extra flavour into it. And therefore I thought, what would it taste like to eat real airplane food on the ground? It will taste extra, it'll taste 50% more flavoursome, even it'll be the most tasty thing in the world ever. Also, I was trying to, I'd given up flying for 18 months to try and save the world, which was very detrimental to my career as an international artist. I did. My, I, I got as far as like Hamburg and Barcelona by train, but anything long further than that was normally too expensive for the commissioners to pay for. Yeah. So I thought maybe I can try and outsource my offsetting by convincing other people to stop flying. So the Plain Food Cafe, I attempted <laughs> to kind of neuro neuro linguistically reprogram people into not wanting to fly anymore. But I'd show a little in flight video about. Um, like an in-flight safety video at the beginning, and it would talk about bird strike and uh, what happens when you know swans are sucked into airplane engines, and you have to if you if it's an American plane, you have to get a little sample of the material of the bird, which is called snarge. I don't know if you're familiar with that word snarge. It's the bloody remains of a bird after it's been sucked into an airplane engine, and they uh-huh. you have to bag up the snarge, and then you send it to a woman at the Smithsonian called Carla Dove. That's her actual name. And she compares the snarge to samples, to other bird samples that she's got in her collection, like physical dead birds. But also she uses DNA uh, microscopy and other analysis to figure out exactly what breed of bird it was. And then she feeds all that information into the Global Bird Avoidance Database, which is known as GBAD for short. And that's used by the military industrial complex around the world to prevent their low-flying, often single-engine jets, which are the most susceptible to bird strike, from uh, sucking birds into their um, engines. So that's that. What that's what the in-flight video was so about. Basically... And, and then and then I'd pull back the curtain and I'd say, "Here's your chicken curry, sir." And they'd look <laughs> at it and they'd go, "Oh God!" And I was hoping that that would kind of neurolinguistically reprogram people into not wanting to go on an airplane anymore and mm. it did work a few people said i've not flown since so in that way i offset my carbon i mean i like that this I, all comes I, I from selfish it. this is not really all as altruistic as as it, it might started, seem right like well, if you just convince 10 people then you've off yeah. you know you've offset your one ticket and you're you're done you're good yeah. to go then, then i can fly as much as i want but also i've 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 done 10 times more 
offsetting than I might have done by myself. So, so it is, it was selfish, but it was also altruistic. And that's a kind of a balancing act that I like to explore in my work. Yeah. I mean, you, you're called an absurdist, which I don't really like the name because it, I guess it makes what you sound, what you do sound silly, which is also something I don't like when people do in Eurovision. Yeah, and we it, are gonna... trivializes, it trivializes my work. <laughs> it does. But like, you know, I, I, I'm assuming that what you would say to me is that like, your work is not absurd. Like life is absurd. Like this dove yes. lady that pushes snarge into a DNA processor or whatever. Yes. That's what I heard anyway. Just like I have Carla, now. Carla I'm... Dove. Yeah. She's great. I've, I've uh, conversed with her about snarge many times. She's very, she was very helpful. I imagine um, you're the yeah. only person that she, uh, that, 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 you know, she's been to a cocktail party and someone's really leaned into that. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Oh, you do what? Oh, you analyze snarch for a living? Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm, that, I don't, what you said was very good and I'm going to steal it. The thing about um, the work's not absurd. The world is absurd. That's good. I'm going to start using that in my artistic statement. Thank you. But, no, yeah, no problem world, at all. But world... I mean, I can't be the person that invented it, but that's it, isn't it? I mean, that's the thing about absurdism is that, um, is that, that blending of reality and, and, and absurdity, right? Like if it was, yeah. I mean, it has to read as real in some way. I don't know. I like to try and use humor in my work because it's a way of breaking down people's natural defenses. Um, yeah. I've recognized that a lot of the old methods of protest no longer work, you know, standing yeah. in the street with a banner, people can ignore it. I ignore it. You know, you see something weird happening in the street and you don't know what it is and you just walk by and you pretend not to see it. But if you can make somebody laugh by what you're doing, then, you know, laughter is involuntary. And so it breaks past those artificial barriers that we put up and makes people engage in the work in a way that they might not have. And uh, hopefully they'll see the underlying message of the work if there is one. And so I like to make um, humorous work about serious topics, which is hard to do because sometimes people just think you're being flippant. Yeah, you, so you put up a confessional. Like a Catholic yeah. confessional made out of plywood. Oh, like a plywood, well, a plywood with some amazing workmanship because it had dovetail joints. So, like, I imagine it's still around somewhere. It is. It's currently in Norwich, in the okay. east of England. I didn't. I didn't build it myself. It was. Uh, I. I gave the parameters of it to a, a, an amazing organisation called Universal Design Studios, who were doing some pro bono work for an organisation called uh, Counterpoints Arts, who organise events like Refugee Week and um, a show at the Tate Modern um, called Who We Are. I'd had the idea for Schedule Fears. It was after Trump and had been elected, I think, and after uh, Brexit had been voted. And I realised that a lot of people have been lying about their voting plans. Yeah. Because it's not cool to say, I'm going to vote to leave the EU, to pe or I'm going to vote Trump. So they lied. And so all the polls were wrong. And um, so I wanted to devise a way to get people to speak to each other honestly, without fear, um, in a private way. Um, and so I thought, oh, if people could go into a little booth and speak to someone in an ad adjacent booth, and they don't have to necessarily know who each who they are, and they can have a they can have a real conversation for once. And that's where the idea of shed your fears came from. It's very much in the vein of a catholic uh mm. confession booth but without the religion without the hierarchy there's no it's just two normal people there's no priests there's no judgment there's no hell marys 
and people could just talk about their fears, their hopes, their dreams. And um, I wasn't sure how it was going to go. Yeah. I didn't know if anyone would actually go into it. Yeah, because you can't ca- force people to engage, can you? No, you, you can't force and, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like karaoke. You can't force people to do karaoke. It's cruel. And they won't enjoy themselves. Well, I mean, the social pressure. As as someone the who is pressure. like, you know, not super fun, I would feel social pressure to do it just from <laughs> the people around me. And then I would do it even though I didn't want to. And then I wouldn't have fun, but I would at least be able to say that I But did. people were curious. Like some of the, one of the people who I was from the organization who commissioned it, um, was a Catholic or was brought up Catholic and she she was like, no one's going to want to go in this thing. I don't want to go in it. And I thought, yeah, well, that's that's a risk. And it's true. Some Catholics didn't want to go inside it and some claustrophobic people didn't want to go inside it because it's quite small. But most of the... Um, Just Catholics and claustrophobic people. That was... Yeah, that and was... especially if you if those that were Catholic and claustrophobic. Yeah, I was going to say, you could heckle people as they pass. Like, what are you, Catholic? Luckily, what are you, Catholic claustrophobic? Like, you don't want to yeah. go in, like, to try to nudge no, them in there, no? The people... No, no, no. The people that were both would just see it and run a mile because it was just the scariest thing they'd ever seen. But, you know, all the uh, non-Catholic... Um, Agoraphobic uh, Protestants. Agropho- agrophobes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. They, they, were, they were well up for it. So we had loads of people. We had like hundreds of people in it. And um, I told people in advance that we'd record the conversation. So there's a little microphone. Um, and then I transcribed all the information that was said. I an- anonymized it. And then um, a couple of years ago, we uh, exhibited some of the quotes on a wall. In a, in a toilet cubicle. In yeah, I was about to ask was- you about the toilet cubicle. Did anyone use it? Uh, yeah, yeah, it was an open public toilet, so anyone could go in there mm. and use it and read, read all the things on the wall and then contribute if they wanted. We left a magic marker in there if people wanted to write their own fears on the walls. And it was during the pandemic, we couldn't do schedule fears as normal because it wasn't Jeez, pandemic Jeez, if you safe. could get somebody to use a port during the pandemic, I feel like I, I was locked inside, so I was quite near my bathroom, but like, you know, getting somebody to touch handles and stuff like that in a mm. public, any public space, that's brave. Yeah, this was just after public spaces had opened, but there was social distancing um, involved. So you could go out, but you couldn't really go close to, you had to, you know, the two, two meter rule and what have you was yeah. still in place. So that was Schedule Fear. So it's a kind of ongoing project. It's toured around a little bit. And uh, yeah, some of the contributors, I transcribed them all myself for data protection reasons. And it was... Uh, quite emotional i was in tears several times uh, typing up the things that people would uh, felt that they could just talk about anything to a complete stranger and it all kind of people really you know opened themselves up and spilled spilled their real secrets and their truths and um in quite a beautiful way i think i hope hopefully it was cathartic for people that took part You've got a lot of work that brings people together. Um, I'm looking here at uh, 99 Red Balloons, Lost Rail, Yourtopia, and the Redux Project. So those seem like, you know, they're meant to bring people together. I understand one of them yeah. is, is it involves mapping. Yeah, you you map places and people talk about yeah. what happened there. Yeah, I did a test. Camden. That was last year. Well, it started a couple of years ago and then we had to cancel it because of the pandemic. And I thought it's never going to happen because it originally was going to involve people um visiting it was a project to try and increase footfall in libraries in the borough of camden in Uh, london and so we wanted to get people into the libraries and have conversations with them about what uh they found important what what local um landmarks had important emotional resonance for them and why so that we can make a little map of those 
um, and perhaps, you know, realise that, oh, 10 people in the local community really like this park bench that the council were maybe going to remove. But now that we know that it's got so many memories and uh, importance for people, that's the grand aim of the project is that it might actually affect things like urban planning eventually once we get a map of hundreds of people and see where their little videos are. Anyway, so we turned it from a thing that would happen inside libraries to a thing what happens on the streets. I followed people around with a camera. They took me to their, their little places, oh, talked about them, why they're important, the memories associated with them. Because, you know, memory is often associated with objects. I mean, if the object yeah, is course, removed yeah. or destroyed, then the memory is lost as well. So we're trying to preserve those memories and also hopefully preserve the, the objects that um, trigger those memories. So that's that's the goal. And um i'm doing it again in croydon in south london this summer as part of the croydon borough of culture so we're doing a second version of it uh we're going to tweak it a bit to make it a bit easier hopefully get more um contributions and yeah i'm having a chat with them about that tomorrow so that's all starting up soon croytopia oh, that version's going to be cool I get yeah I, I I do think about sometimes the magical experiences that about that people have with boring things like <laughs> you know like every Italian has this little Bialetti coffee maker you know what I mean it's sure. just um, yeah. ubiquitous but also is very it's like a very personal object and yeah. um, in completely unrelated news um, my husband asked me to get married at Gatwick Airport wow wow that's very <laughs> romantic I hope you said yes. Yes, oh, yes. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. I did say mean, yes. Do but, you mean he proposed at Gatwick or he wanted to have the wedding ceremony at Gatwick? Um, both, both are odd, but um, <laughs> no, he just, he just proposed at... Uh, oh, okay. Well, that's, that's more... That's I mean, presumably, if, if I, I mean, you're kind of, I missed a trick here because I, maybe I could have, getting married is expensive because I, I don't know if you're aware, but in England, you have to get married underneath a structure. You cannot get married in the in the open, right? Like, so it's not like America. You can't just like hire a local officiant to come out to a beach. Maybe if I'd convinced Gatwick, wow, to be Airport that structure steam. with a, with a roof, you have to have a roof in England to get married. And um, I feel that I could have leveraged that somehow to have Gatwick foot the bill as a venue, right? Like, oh, yeah. you know, the, but but Gatwick is is like you know not. Um, I don't want to say it's not Heathrow. Or uh, Stansted, right? It's no Heathrow, is it? Or it's no Stansted? It's but yeah, hardly, it's definitely it's hardly very Heathrow. It's definitely pedestrian, right? Like everybody will walk by that place, and it's a boring concrete place where you know people just don't think it's it's a liminal space. It's purgatory. You're neither here nor there. It is not your destination. You will walk right past past that place every time you you. I'm the only person that stops in that place. Yeah. I like places like that and um like airports do tend to have chapels as well don't they places where you can go yeah. and pray so i think getting married in an airport that that would have been a really good thing for them to have done during the pandemic because they had to close most of gatwick and they could have kept the place going by opening it as a um as a wedding venue i think you're onto something with this yeah like right between and then, and then how easy you know, is the it Ted to Baker fly and the Sbarro off or whatever i don't know and then you can immediately fly off onto your honeymoon without having to do so conveniently located for honeymoons or your guests could just sleep in those horrendous pods that aren't really a room they're more like a coffin do you know what i'm talking yeah, about they've the, got those I think, yeah the gotel i think it's called yes, I'm not, I'm not, I, it's too expensive for me to stay in but i've heard of it like a capsule like a japanese capsule hotel exactly that but but without um, the charm. Oh, anyway, the, the 99 Red Balloons, I'd been doing a residency at a, a former American nuclear air base called Greenham Common. 
Okay. Which is where, in the 80s, Ronald Reagan uh, put quite a lot of his nuclear missiles, I think 98 nuclear missiles, on, on British soil as part of the Cold War, because they were obviously closer to Russia and more of a threat. And uh, the people of the UK were quite upset and annoyed by that, because it meant that our country suddenly was a very big nuclear target yeah. to the Russians. And so there were lots of protests... Um, anti-nuclear protests. Uh, a women's peace camp started in Greenham Common, which became internationally famous. People stayed next to the uh, base. They lived down there for like months, years at a time. And um, eventually the US military took away the nuclear missiles, thus ruining me and my mum's weekends because we'd often go down and protest. And um, finally, finally they took them away. We were, we were happy, but also we were a bit disappointed. Again, it's the whole, you know, selfish, uh, altruistic thing. There was a little bit of that there. We were like, yay, the weapons have gone. But you now bring Ooh. 99 helium balloons, red balloons, to a, to a theatre with 99 people. You give out the balloons and you sing 99 Luftballons or whatever it's called in English. That's a little bit strange that I only know the German version of it. <laughs> 99 red balloons and you all suck helium and sing the song. Yeah, which is quite dangerous. You should also make sure you inhale plenty of oxygen when you're doing that, otherwise you can faint. But yeah, I've been doing a residency. This this airbase, after it was um, abandoned by the Americans, it turned into a kind of place where art happens, and I got invited to go and do a residency down there. So I was hanging out on this airbase. It was the middle of winter. Um, I had, all the nuclear bunkers are still there, and the decontamination chambers, which are an amazing space to kind of wander around. And... Um, the performance that came out of that was called 99 Red Balloons. And yeah, as you said, I give the balloons to people, we inhale the helium, and then we sing the song 99 Red Balloons by Nina, uh, which itself is a song about the Cold War. Sure. And again, it's a kind of collective cathartic experience for most. And it sounds quite amazing as well, a whole choir of audience members singing in high-pitched voices. It's quite a unique thing to hear. And quite I believe lovely. that. Yeah. Um, so that's one of my kind of, you know ongoing cabaret performances a bit like fucks it's much cheaper than fucks biz although they do have to buy a small a tank of helium which uh, the right. problem is like helium's helium's it's running out as well isn't it so it's a yeah, bit unethical yeah. that performance now and the rubber the rubber's no good and and the hedgehogs can get their heads stuck in the balloons and it's an environmental catastrophe that so i haven't done that one for a while actually Fair even enough. though it is cheaper even though it is cheaper than fucks biz well, you got a load of Eurovision stuff. I'm going to go through it quickly because I heard about Coronavision from someone I know and I we lived slightly outside of London and I you've been a mythical figure in my head for a long time because I was <laughs> like, oh, if you know, there's a 40, if a 40 minute train ride, you know, lockdowns permitting and there is some genius person that has done this thing called Coronavision, but you've got Coronavision, Eurovision centered things or loosely Eurovision centered things. You got your Coronavision, your Palestinian song contest, mm. your Eurovision karaoke. And um, I think that's it, is that is, is that it? You can there's discuss a few any more things, of those things. But like, like we can, yeah, there's there's a bunch of stuff, but that, that's, um, that's most of it. Um, and uh, yeah, Coronavision, basically they'd announced in the UK there's gonna be a lockdown. This was in March of 2018, 2022, of course. No, March 2022, when the lockdown was announced. Everyone was a little bit worried and cautious and uh, 
sort of slightly on the edge. And then five days before the lockdown began, Eurovision said, we're going to have to cancel the contest this year. <gasps> and it was like a little extra, little kind of kick in the teeth for a lot of people. Yeah, I, I know for me too. Palpable, yeah, yeah. There was like a palpable sense of shock and disappointment on the internet on social media that i noticed immediately even though i wasn't with anybody personally at the time when that was announced i could sense it a bit like in star wars when obi-wan kenobi senses a um a disturbance in the force it was a bit like that i've, I've not seen i've not seen that film, yeah i mean it was I, like I people that what... didn't even care about eurovision were like that too they've taken that like, away that from too. us too oh my like, god it's yeah. really sick they're cancelling eurovision's never been it's the first year since 1956 there hasn't been Eurovision. this is serious this pandemic's just got serious Anyway, and it's so not going to end, right? Like, it's not going to end. Like, you cancel yeah, it's it not in be December. Over by, that, like, this yeah, means it's not yeah. going to be over by May. It's going to be more than a couple of weeks. Yeah. <laughs> People thought that no one knew how long it's going to last about that. So minutes after the announcement that Eurovision was going to get cancelled, I announced on the internet that I was going to start my own international song contest to happen in, in place of Eurovision. And... It was quite a rash decision and it's also been described as naive <laughs> and arrogant and romantic and megalomaniacal that to think that one person could start their own international song contests in like two months and so that's what i tried to do i set up a web page i posted about it on social media i set up a facebook group which quickly amassed thousands of um people still got like 2.7 thousand people i think it peaked to over 3,000 people in this facebook group and there was just a palpable sense that people really thought that this might be something i didn't know if anyone would enter i got i got over 30 entries from all around the world there were some rules they were mostly the same rules as eurovision you know it's got to be a new song it can't be longer than actually i reduced the time limit to two minutes so that the contest would be short because i think I didn't know then, but certainly people during the lockdown had quite short attention spans for watching long pieces of I believe art that, yeah. On the internet, you know, it's not the same as being there live, is it? You can just go and put the kettle on, you get distracted by your phone. So I wanted to keep it, you know, under an hour and a half, which I think I think it was eventually. What country won? What what megalomaniac will be able to host the next one? Well, uh, that's a really good question because I, I keep I even though I'm British, I don't. I tend. I tend not to support the British acts at Eurovision. I, I'm kind of. I'm not very nationalistic about Eurovision. I know um, a lot of people are, and they have their flags, and people say, "Oh, it's the only place where you where it's okay to be nationalistic." But I don't care. I never care about the UK entry or if it wins or not. I'm just there for the for the spectacle of it. So I, I wasn't even during Coronavision. I wasn't even kind of reading out the. Um, obviously, it had all the graphics on the video explaining what country they were. But when I was reading the results. I wasn't even um, saying, you know, oh, 10 points for Russia. I was just saying, you know, the name of the song and the name of the artist. And people were texting me, live texting me saying, Richard, you've got to tell us what the country is. And um, I'm just explaining this because it's giving me the time to look up what country. No, don't look La it up. I, I will say, though, Lorna you... was representing Canada. Oh, Canada. Um, That's great. Canada. Yeah, and I should remember that because a Canadian record company put uh, released her winning song so you can actually find it on places like apple music and amazon and spotify if you want to hear it although i you will know, you don't have to pay don't feel that you have to pay for it because you can also just watch it on, on the coronavision site anyway the winning song was canada and the performer was called lorna melody reese and her song was called Kelly la date de ton anniversaire 
which means what is the name what is the date of your birthday wow and it was it was pretty it was a pretty good song there was a few that i thought oh these could win but um lorna was one of them and eventually it was very close i think it was down to one point between that and the uh the german entry i think so riveting down riveting down to the stuff final, down i to the be... final few seconds but I, I understand that the equivalent of the whatever it is we've got the library of congress right in the in the states so whatever the, sure. the, the whatever british archive has has requested to keep these and and house them and archive them these entries did i get that right that that is true the british library yep which um is the place i think by law a copy of every book that's published in the uk yeah, has okay, to right. send one to the british library um, but they also have other collections that which they make, and yeah, they asked, they contacted me and asked me if I if I'd be willing to submit or um, give the CoronaVision Song Contest to the British Library for their their permanent collection, which was a huge uh, privilege and honour. And so, yeah, if you go to the British Library, you can um, find find down in the basement somewhere they've got a copy of the CoronaVision Song Contest, which I think is ridiculous and also remarkable. We did it all properly. Um, we had a, a draw to figure out the order, the running order. You know, we uh, there was a score sheet that you could download so you could mark give marks. We had proper voting at the end where people could submit online their votes and it all kind of worked on the night because I was just doing, I didn't really know what I was doing. I'd, I'd had a tiny bit of live television experience, so I knew a little bit about how they did it, but really it was just me and a laptop. So I downloaded some software that was free. I It was clunky and I kind of learned how to use it. And cause I needed to do all the vision mixing from the videos to the live commentary and stuff. And I really, up until the day before I didn't, or up until the day, I didn't know if it would actually work. But luckily it did, and we had thousands of people watching live. It was ridiculous. And It's um, not ridiculous. It's, magi it's, magical. it's magical. It was magical. It was magical. I couldn't believe it that it had actually happened. And uh, it was done on a completely zero budget. The only money spent was £3.49 on a plastic trophy. You keep Which talking about cost, Richard. You keep bringing the cost thing up. Like, what price yeah. a confessional? What what price a portaloo with 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 all of your fears written in them you know what price yeah. a eurovision replacement yeah 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 well you know all my work had been cancelled in um in march when the lockdown was announced so for i would say at least 6 months i had no income from my work as a as a professional performance artist um, I didn't have a secondary job like a lot of other artists they teach or something and so they managed to get furloughed and therefore they got like two thirds of their pay was given to them by the government but um, I didn't have any of that because I just make art and so it was then that I realised oh god this is a really bad idea being a professional performance artist but I suddenly had so much free time that I thought I've got to do something and I've got to do something cheap so <laughs> yeah. I did apply. I applied for funding from various sources for the Coronavision Song Contest, but there's so much competition for arts funding yeah, back then. Everyone was suddenly freaking out. Everyone's getting like that. It was like a thousand to one, a thousand entries for each little bit of funding. But eventually, I was like, "Oh God, I'm going to have to do." <laughs> Not only have I got to organise an international singing contest by myself, I've also got to do it for no money. But eventually, I did spend three pound forty nine on the trophy which I sent to Lorna Reese through the post. And um, she still has that in her house. She People were interviewing Lorna. Um, she was on Canadian radio 
So it really blew up in a way that um, I don't think any of us could have expected. The year after I released an HD remaster of the whole contest, which was slightly shorter, I cut out some of the technical problems and it was in HD because the, the stream of the that we put on Facebook Live was only, uh, you know, quite low resolution. So it's like a brand new re-edit and we had all the videos and it looked really nice. And uh, yeah, it's in the British Library now, so that's it, it's permanently there. It ca cannot be destroyed, even by a nuclear strike, because they've got very deep bunkers. So even if we do get nuked, <laughs> CoronaVision will probably survive the uh, the apocalypse. I made a karaoke version of Lorna's winning song without the, without the vocals and with words on so people can sing it, um, which I think is quite powerful. I think the intersection of Eurovision and karaoke is something that I want to explore more oh, for sure, in yeah. the future. And every so often people come up to me who I don't know and um, say how much they, how much Coronavision meant to them. And it always surprises me. And it's very touching because I think people were so uh, sad and lost and isolated that it really, um, it meant much more to people than I realised at the time. So people keep on asking me if I'm going to do another one. And and you're like, I say, the, the next pandemic if there's another pandemic, I'll do another. Yeah. If they cancel Eurovision again, I'll do okay, another Okay, yeah, one. fair and, enough. Because it was hard, and I would not normally be able to do it, apart from in those weird circumstances where I literally had nothing, no work for several months, so it was fine for me to do it. So yeah, it, was kind, it was kind of unique, but you never know. We might, we might bring it back. But it really just proves... it. What it proved was how easy it is for somebody with no resources to make something that's not as good as but still slightly comparable to an international institution with millions of you know dollars of uh, funding that has been going for 50 years so that whole notion of asymmetrical broadcasting as i like to call it i think is a powerful uh, symbol of how this is the perfect time for us to seize the means of production and question all these hierarchies and reorder the world in our favor if anyone does want to hear the Eurovision, uh, the Chronovision contributions, there's a little video of all the country. Like you can watch the whole contest, which lasts 90 minutes, or you can just watch a two minute video that's got a few clips of all the songs. I think you'll be impressed by the scope and the breadth of the entries. I certainly was. And they're all available to look at at deadomenici.com forward slash Chronovision. Good luck spelling that. You won't have to, because if you look right below wherever you get this podcast, you'll be, there'll be like a podcast description and you can just go there and I'll put the links or you can go to our, um, our, our show page and, and find everything there. Well, that'll be filled with links. I love this. Your first Eurovision entry that you have sent me, and I have to thank you for sending these to me, because what I've discovered in doing this po podcast is that Everyone watches moments in Eurovision that they think are car crash moments. And then everyone makes these, they contort their faces. They go, what? And nobody <laughs> wants to, nobody wants to talk about those on the program. Nobody wants oh, to talk about strong feelings with entries. People want to talk about lovingly, like a lot of adoration. And so I, I, I just told you to send me four submissions that you have strong feelings about. I don't know what those feelings are. This first entry is illusion. Krasimir Am Av Av Avramov. Avramov. It's not even. It's not even that difficult. And this was a slice. This is. This has got to be one of the most bonkers. I'll tell you what I my takeaways were. This was the most. What am I watching? Eurovision submission I've ever seen, hands down. 
very fire saga in the sense that there's everything. You got your stilt, wa- stilt walkers, your falsetto, the neon, the wind machine, the man in a cape, folk themes, sexy people, and David Lee Roth hair. There's some green silk thigh high boots. Uh, there's a lot of falsetto. And I thought this was a group, but it turns out it's just a dude <laughs> in falsetto, singing in falsetto with some backup dancers. That's what I have from this. What, why did you, and it's Bulgaria. Sorry, it's Bulgaria. Why did you send this to me? Why, why this? <laughs> you asked me. <laughs> perché, Ricardo, perché? Um, why? Uh, it's interesting you mentioned Fire Saga. When I saw the stilt walkers at the beginning, they're kind of doing this ridiculous dance on stilts. Yeah. And it looks really similar to the dance that um, Mugatu does in the film Zoolander, who is yes. played by Will, Will Ferrell. It looks like a ridiculous Will Ferrell dance. So it doesn't, it, this is even before Fire Saga. And yeah, clearly, yeah. Sorry, 2009. Yeah, this is 2000. So even though it is very Fire Saga, you know, it predates it, but there is still a Will Ferrell reference almost in it. When I saw it, I was like, oh, yeah. God, this is like laughable. Is this supposed to be not laughable? And the whole thing, there's so much to talk about. You're right. It's it's Krasimir Avramov. He's he's the act. It's not a group, even though there's like four or five people on stage all doing things with their own personalities. It's not just Krasimir with some backing singers. It's like these four different performers, but it's only credited to Krasimir, which I thought was very peculiar. And he's singing in this kind of, yes, this falsetto. And unfortunately, I don't know what happened. Maybe they maybe they couldn't hear the monitors on the stage, or I don't know if they were using in-ear monitors in 2009, but he's slightly out of tune. He's slightly flat and he's he's the lead singer, which is annoying because he's out of tune and everyone else. You can he's kind of out of tune in, in falsetto, in falsetto. He's yeah. out of tune. And the other three who are mostly in tune there, you can see them looking at each other and thinking, would it be better if we also sung out of tune? With them? <laughs> so that at least we're all out of tune together. Or should we just carry on being in tune? And I think they carried on because that's the right thing to do. So Krasimir is slightly off he's singing quite loud that's almost screaming in falsetto out of tune and at about the two minute mark it kind of builds to an amazing out of tune crescendo it's a very serious song he's taking it uh with a lot of uh, he's very earnest and it's one of the mo- and it's a shame because if you go and watch his music video it's still a bit of a ostentatious song but you can kind of see what they were trying to do with the, but the live version. Oh no! I was very confused. You mean this was a good was song? Very... This song was decent, and then something happened. It was fine. In translation. It was fine. It probably wasn't going to win, but it was. It wasn't embarrassingly. You know, you can tell he can actually sing, and he's not the only Eurovision act to have had problems with their monitors and can't quite hear themselves or the backing music. You know, let's just remember Gemini from the UK, for instance, yeah. or Ping Pong from Israel, who were a little bit flat. But I don't think that. I I think that's just because they were. They didn't care. Hey, Eurovision Song Context listeners. As usual, for technical reasons, we've had to split this episode into two. Carry on to the next episode to listen to my conversation with Richard Di Domenici. (laughs) 